there could not be a better song to uh, introduce the part of uh, Jonah's story that we're going to look at this morning. And I love the fact that uh, Kevin invited us. You may not have realized it, but he was inviting all of us to to think for a moment about at least some part of our stories. And we all have one. Everyone in this room has a story that is all about the activity of God in their life, in your life, in my life. And that's a part of the Christian life. We, we talk about the portrait of a connected life, and we say that one of those connections is connecting backward with our story. And the reason we need to do that is so that we really can see the activity of God. That, that reminds us of who he is and who we are and what he's done for us and what he wants to do with us going forward. So it's a huge part of just basic Christian living. And as we come to this book of Jonah, honestly, what we're doing is we're just getting this little part of Jonah's life story. And um, he's telling us this story. It's not very flattering. He doesn't look very good. He won't today, I promise you. But I, I have a hunch, and I think there's good evidence that uh, Jonah is the author of this book. Um, it's, that's not certain, but all of the details that are in it, only he could have known. Or God would have had to reveal that to, to some other author. So I, I think it's perfectly acceptable that Jonah wrote this part of his story. And he knew as he wrote it that it wasn't going to look very good for him, but it was going to look great for God. And so he's sharing this with us, perhaps at a time in his life when he looks back, like all of us look back at the reckless love of God. We go, wow. He came after me. He fought for me. He did things in my life I didn't even want him to do at the time, but he did it anyway. That's where we're going this morning with uh, Jonah chapter 2. And it's, uh, there's a simple way to remember it, perhaps for you. I've got four words in your outline just to help us kind of remember what's happening here. So you've got a splash, you've got a swallow, you've got a song, and then you've got second chances. That's chapter two in a, in a nutshell. Jonah is going to give us a raw description of where he is, and he's not going to try and uh, dress it up. When we last left him, if you'll remember last week, he was being hurled through the air into the sea. That's where we get the splash. But just remember, this is a prophet uh, on the run from God. And God's not surprised. God knows exactly what's going on. God has a plan. And Jonah's going to kind of learn about that plan as he is going along. He has displayed extreme apathy. Remember, he's down in the very bottom hold of the ship, completely asleep, 
while this storm is raging and threatening everyone else on the boat. And when he's invited to engage his God, like all of the other uh, Gentiles on the boat, he's like, eh, I don't know about that. And then they start to question him about who he is and what he's done. And is he maybe responsible for this storm? And finally he fesses up and says, this is all about me. And then they're like, so what do we do? And it's so interesting. This takes some thought. This isn't really obvious. But just about everybody I've read said that Jonah would rather die than repent. And so what does he say? Hurl me into the sea and the storm will go away. And it it sounds so benevolent, like he really cares about these guys. And, and, you know, maybe he does at some level, but he's still not willing to face up to why he is on that boat and why there is a storm raging to begin with. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the end of chapter one says the sea ceased from its raging and Then the men, these Gentile polytheistic sailors who don't know Jonah's God, it says they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They were delivered. Then verse 17, that's where we're starting today. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's probably a good time for us to ask a question that just about anybody who's ever studied Jonah has asked, and that is, what about the miraculous? How does that play into this story? And some have said that the miracles that we find in Jonah tell us that it's really just a fable, just kind of a a story that was constructed to teach a moral lesson and it it would never be or should be considered literal or historical. And I'll just remind us that Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14. Remember, he was a real prophet for a real king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then also Jesus himself refers to him in Matthew 12. And says that the experiences actually referenced in our chapter today were an anticipation of the death, burial, and resurrection and preaching of Christ. So it just seems strange to assume that a fable would actually be referred to as a literal historical kind of event. And there's nothing in the book that signals it should be interpreted Uh, as just like an allegory or a fable or a tale. Every indication is that it ought to be taken literally. It's also interesting to me that um, some commentators just strain to offer rational explanations for that which is miraculous, like a fish swallowed a man and he lived for three days and then was vomited alive on a beach? That sounds miraculous. I wonder if there is a fish out there that's big enough that could actually take in a man, keep him inside for three days, and then actually, does that make sense? Like, 
No, it's a miracle. There isn't a rational explanation for that. That's why it's a signal of God's activity. It's outside the bounds. You know, the story of Christianity is miraculous from beginning to end. We have a creator who created all things, who sometimes breaks into creation and overrides the laws that he put in place of time and space. It's a miracle. If you throw out the miraculous, you literally throw out Christianity. So we're going to treat this book as if God has broken in and he has taken charge of all that he created so that it would serve his purposes and accomplish the results he intends. So the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. One commentator says this, in the silence, and I want you to kind of go there. Like there's this raging storm and, and Jonah is flying through the air and there's the splash and he begins to sink and then there's silence. Brian Estelle says, there's a sense in which we too are dragged beneath the surface of the water, uncertain and holding our breath for what will happen next. Are you on the edge of your seat? Like what's going to happen next? So we've got the swallow. And I think of uh, the fish as sort of a watery timeout for Jonah. You know, it's like God, is, God wants to just stop everything and give his prophet a little time to think. Maybe listen, maybe change his mind. I, I uh, sort of constructed a story that might help us relate a little bit to Jonah's story, but in more of a contemporary uh, context. The story goes like this. There's a dad. He tells his teenage son to go mow the lawn of his neighbor. Now his son, he's a pretty sharp young lad, and he's thinking through this, and he knows his neighbors. And they're a bad bunch. They're pretty rough. They're not quite as refined and moral as his family is. And uh, he's actually overheard them mock his mom and dad and, and sort of ridicule their family. And uh, he's been in a couple tussles with some of their kids. And so he doesn't have a very high opinion of his neighbors. And he can't imagine why his dad would send him to go next door and mow their lawn. He thinks that's the stupidest idea in the world. He thinks his dad has just really lost touch with reality. So instead of going next door, he takes off through the woods to his secret, quote, secret treehouse. And he's just going to hang out there for the afternoon. So he's cruising through, whistling, thinking, you know what, poor old dad. He doesn't really know what's going on, but I got this figured out. Gets to his treehouse, starts to make his climb up the ladder. Pretty, pretty proud of how he's kind of thinking all through this. And he bumps his head right through the, the, the bottom opening of the treehouse. And guess who's sitting there? There's Dad. Oh, dear. <laughs> 
wasn't expecting that one, right? Now, how should that boy respond right then and there in that moment? What should he say? What will he say? What should any of us say whenever we find ourselves at odds with what God has clearly told us to do? That brings us to the song, Jonah's song. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now this looks pretty promising. It's like he went from running to praying. That's progress. That's a good sign. And we get the feeling that this wayward prophet might be coming to his senses. Seems pretty good. He composes a psalm. It really is in the form of a psalm. And it resembles from the psalms a thanksgiving or praise psalm, which was typically written by the psalmists who had experienced deliverance, which he certainly will. And so it has that form and actually uses phrases from the psalms. So let me just read this to you. Jonah writes, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, all by itself, if we had just come across that psalm in the book of Psalms, it sounds very virtuous and very sincere. But if we take this psalm in the context of the larger story of the book of Jonah, and we dig down a little bit into the details of what he's actually saying, this is kind of a fishy prayer, pun intended. I mentioned technically it is a thanksgiving for deliverance, but laced through it, if you look carefully, you'll see the accusations of a lament. Now, if you read the lament psalms, typically that is a, a person of God who is in the midst of danger. They're being threatened, and they're crying out to God for deliverance. So it isn't thanksgiving and praise. It's actually a complaint against God. And it's a request 
for deliverance. So that's an important distinction between those two kinds. So it's Jonah, <laughs> he's been very, uh, I don't know, uh, he's carefully selected phrases from the Psalms that actually appear in laments, but put them together in such a way that they come off as a thanksgiving. Do you see what I'm saying? One commentator says every line of this patchwork psalm contains a degree of irony. So let's just work through each one of these phrases and see what's really going on here. He said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So the opening line sort of portrays this picture of Jonah as an innocent bystander. If you didn't have chapter one, you would just think he literally fell off a pier into the water and he just finds himself drowning. And it's like, I'm going down to Sheol. But the interesting thing about Sheol is that is the place where God would place people to create separation. Do you you get the drift? I've been thrown into Sheol. Now the question is, who threw him there? Next verse. You cast me into the deep. How about that? Wasn't the sailors. And it wasn't the fact that he told them to hurl him into the sea. Now it's God who hurled him into the sea. And it's his waves and his billows that are passing over him and drowning him. He's setting up this picture of God as the bad guy. And he's the good guy. And poor old me, I'm just in the ocean here. I'm drowning. And you did it to me, God. Then I said, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now there's an alternative translation here that I actually, there's some division on translators. That second phrase, yet I shall again look, that some will say that's a a statement of hope, that he's assuming I will look at that. Uh, Another translation, I think it's a better translation, translation is actually a question. Shall I again look upon your holy temple? Now here's the question. Did God drive Jonah away? Is there any indication whatsoever in the story that we've been told so far that God actually drove Jonah to go down to Joppa, to go down to the ship, to head to Tarshish in the opposite direction of Nineveh? Did God drive him to do that? Or did he attempt to flee the presence of the Lord? Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root, roots of the mountains. It's amazing. There is this very detailed description of his hardship and yet not a word of his guilt. <laughs> not a bit. It's just like a really, really bad day for Jonah. And he's writing about it. Let's slide down to verse 7. One commentator put a subhead over this called, Great is my faithfulness. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those not like me who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, me, Jonah, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Sounds so pious, so righteous. He's like, let me just tell you, the reason God saved me down at the bottom of the ocean was because I remembered him. I prayed to him. And I'm going to sacrifice to him. That, that sounds so noble. It kind of reminds me, there's this uh, story in 1 Samuel 15 of King Saul. And uh, he was in a military battle there and was commanded to destroy the Amalekites. And he disobeyed the Lord. And he kept some of the spoils he and the people did for themselves. And so uh, Samuel comes along and confronts him. And he comes off real pious and holy like I did what the Lord said to do. And, and the prophet says, what's the, what's the bleeding of sheep that I hear? Because I'm pretty sure God said to just destroy everything. And Saul gives this explanation. Well, you know what? We, we decided, because we really do know what's best, we decided to set aside some of the spoils and we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord because he's so worthy. So we just decided our plan was better than his plan. Listen to what Samuel says to him. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of lambs. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. See, Jonah has this idea that he can by his way out of his rebellion. And God's not going to let him do that for his good because he knows that there's nothing at all that Jonah could ever do to compensate for his sin. None of us can. He's going to have to receive mercy. You remember our delinquent lawn boy I described a few minutes ago? If this song were in the mouth of that lawn boy talking to his dad, here's what it might have sounded like. Dad, what a surprise. I'm sure glad I found you. I was actually wondering where you were and you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. I was making my way through the woods and I heard this growling sound. And then I was face to face with a dog that looked like a bear. So I took off 
as fast as I could, running straight for my treehouse to get to safety. I made it here just in time, or I might have been eaten. Sure is hot out here. Hey, Dad, do you want to go back to the house and get some lemonade, and we can just kind of sit around and see what's on TV and just kind of spend the afternoon together? That doesn't feel great, does it? It doesn't feel like the boy is coming to his father with his heart. He's putting on pious pretense. He's saying the right things. It sounds great, but it just isn't honest, which means he doesn't really trust his dad. I think all his dad would want him to do is to just come clean, to face whatever consequences there might be associated with his disobedience, but to live in the reality of the relationship that he has with his dad. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 15. I think this is a great description of Jonah's song and of our disobedient lawn boy. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Scholar uh, Jonathan Maganet calls Jonah's psalm a retreat into piety. He says it's really just another attempt to flee from God. It's just a different strategy. When flight from God did not work, there is always flight to God or to that convenient God who makes no demands beyond those the worshiper can comfortably offer. What if Jonah had borrowed from Psalm 51? when he went into the belly of the fish. Now, I want you to hear this with chapter one in mind, okay? So Jonah gets hurled off of the ship, swallowed by the fish, and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then down in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors, Ninevites, your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken 
and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our penitent lawn boy would say this. Dad, I should have known you'd find me. I didn't mow the neighbor's yard. And you probably already knew that. (laughs) I just don't understand why you want to be nice to them. I know you must have a good reason. I just don't get it. I'm sorry for ignoring you and for disobeying what you told me to do. Please forgive me. I'm going to go ahead and get over to the neighbor's house and fire up the lawnmower. Would you go with me? Doesn't that sound different? Now, the best part of all in this part of the story is that Jonah gets exactly what he doesn't deserve. A second chance. You see, God could have just let him drown in the ocean. He could have let him die in the fish. But he appoints the fish. He tells the fish. He commands the fish to put him on the beach. It gives him a second chance. He gets a second chance at physical life, but more importantly, he gets a second chance at his calling from God. Isn't that cool? And by sending this prophet, God is giving Nineveh a second chance to hear a message of second chances. And that's the, that is the heart of God. That's, that's what our whole Bible is about, but that's really what this book is about. That's what Jonah is trying to help us see through his rebellion, is that God is a God of second chances. He is a God of reckless, scandalous love that no one deserves. The greatest evidence of all of that is the fact that he would leave heaven, take on flesh, dwell among us, live a perfect life as a servant of his creation, die at their hands, and then rise again in victory over death and sin. Able to bring us home. And that's good news. There's a lot more that we'll say about second chances in chapter 3, so you'll have to come back for that. But we can clearly see that though God hasn't said much yet, he'll say more later, but God is very clearly demonstrating that he will go to any lengths at all to help his people walk in the commission that he's given them as redeemed children. So so we're talking about this idea of being on mission. That's where we can really identify with Jonah. 
And every one of us have, quote, Ninevites somewhere in our view. And all of us, to some degree, are going to have to wrestle with how we see them. And the reason Jonah saw the Ninevites the way he did was directly related to how he saw himself. And honestly, this chapter bears it out. He had a much higher view of himself than he should have. Now, full of value value and worth, God obviously thinks very much of him but not because of the reasons that Jonah carries around. It's just because he's an image bearer, that he's a creation of God, and that God wants to use him in beautiful, redemptive ways. I felt like a good good response to this part of the story would be for us to um, spend some time in confession. That, that is a form of prayer. There's obviously all kinds of prayers that we can offer. But every single person in this room, myself included, we all fall short of the glory of God, don't we? And I hope... <laughs> Man, if you can't think of something, let's talk. (laughs) But I'll bet you there is something that you can agree with God about. That's what confession is. It's just agreeing with God. This is the real me. And this is why I need you so desperately. Lord, put your finger right on it. Whatever it is. Just show that to me, and I will agree with you that that is out of alignment, and Lord, help me get realigned with your heart and your will and your purposes. So I'm just going to give you a moment. This is our so what. We always ask that question, so what, after we're studying God's word. So today our so what is going to really just be a, a brief time of confession. And again, this isn't Romans 8 said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we confess, we're not mounting up the evidence that God has to kick us out. What we're doing is we're acknowledging those things about us that needed to be forgiven. And then that brings us to a beautiful place of thanksgiving. I just want to say, don't go there too quickly. Spend some time inviting the Holy Spirit to identify that in you which is out of alignment with who God is, what He's like, and what He's done. All right? Take a moment. Prayer of confession. And then Jeff will close us in just a moment.